welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, the radiology podcast where normally I start with a beautifully cryptic reference to the topic for the day for my co-host to decipher, except today he's taking care of this episode, so I have absolutely no idea what to say. It's all unraveled into a mess, which, to be honest, is not unlike my co-host, Frank Gaylard. <laughs> I am a mess, Dixon. It's been a tough few weeks. My mother has been living with me for months and she's finally moved out. Now that makes it sound awful. Mum, if you're listening to the podcast, which I know you sometimes do, it was wonderful to have you around, but I know you needed your own space and I needed my fridge back without <laughs> random little jars of leftovers. Did I tell you the bacon incident? No, haven't heard the bacon incident. So my mother is not as good a cook as an Italian mother should be. <laughs> She's letting the side down. But she can cook a pasta for the boys when Natalie and I go out. Yeah. Usually she cooks like a pasta sauce with tomato and bacon. Now at the butcher that we go to, mm -hmm. uh, they have these pre-made diced bacon packets. It's about 250 grams. Nice free range, organic, whatever, ethically killed, but real, <laughs> not vat grown uh, bacon. So I come home and there's this Tupperware container. Containing, and I'm not exaggerating, like eight five millimeter cubes of bacon in the bottom. And I said, "What? What is this, Mum? I don't like leftovers at the best of times." And she says, "Oh, there was there was too much bacon." And it's like in five thousand years of written history that humans have created, those words have never been uttered before. <laughs> too much bacon. No one has said, "Oh my God, these extra." 3.5 grams of bacon is going to completely ruin a sauce for a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. It's going to throw the ratios out. Crazy. And so then those bacon things live there for, you know, a week before she uses them in, in something. And it's like, oh, that's, that's not how I work. I'm, uh, I'm not a leftover person. You eat it all or you throw it out. That's it. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows what the topic is? Ah. Perhaps you could come up with a little cryptic clue on the on the fly for me, Gaylord. On the so fly. I, can have a, I can have a little go at, at sitting in your in your seat for a chance. Oh, hang on. I've got an idea. Hang on a sec. What are you doing? You're typing. I'm getting chat GDP to help. Hang on. <laughs> to write a cryptic clue. <laughs> yep. Okay, here we go. This is this is the response. Okay. Ah. It's good at coming up with crap. All right. In fur and in feather, I decipher their ills in cryptic clinic chambers where silence instills. Who am I in this mystic, enigmatic endeavor? <laughs> Guess my role and I'll say it's forever. Guess my role. It's just throwing words back at you. You must have said cryptic and something like that. So it's going, oh, yeah, I'll put that in the, put that in the poem. Oh, the, the clues in the first line, in fur and in feather. Well, that's animals, right? And guess yeah. my role. So is it uh, veterinary? It is. It's, I recorded an interview with Kathy Beck, uh -huh. a veterin, veterin, a vet. I can never say that word. Veterinarian. A vet, a vet radiologist here in Melbourne. <laughs> Uh, who actually reached out to us via the she podcast. Did, yeah, I remember. Yeah. yeah, we read out her comment, I think, some time ago. I actually have a veterinary radiology story because it came up in my newsfeed earlier this week, actually. Oh, really? Um, did you see that? I think it was an angelfish at Denver Zoo. <laughs> so apparently it was seen alive but floating on the surface of the water in its enclosure. Right. You know, you might think it's time to 
euthanize a fish that's floating on top of the water, yep. but not at not at Denver Zoo, Gaylord. <laughs> now they did a uh, a CT scan, of course, and there's this awesome photo on social media of the of the fish propped up in a CT scanner. And it's not even in water; it's just sitting there. It's got like a couple of sponges holding it to keep it up upright. Oh, hang on, let no me have water. A look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on their Instagram, Denver Zoo. So there's just this fish. Ah. I mean, it's a cool fish. Okay, but that's it's not actually in water. It's it's sort of on no, the surface. No, it's out of water. Yeah. But that CT is massive. Yeah, that's it's like a, a small fish, but that's an elephant CT, right? Yeah, yeah, because they use it for like gorillas and stuff as well. <laughs> so they did a scan. You know, the good news is he's no longer floating after the scan, but bad news is his oxygen levels have plummeted. <laughs> yeah, no, no surprise. <laughs> Apparently some kind of enteritis or something had lots of gas ah. in its in its. Now bowel. is he really frontal because he's had a hypoxic event? Probably. What would a frontal fish he's be like? He's like just saying whatever comes through his mind. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently all he needed was antibiotics. But, of course, you needed the CT scan to know that, Gaylord. There's no oh. way you could possibly know without doing the CT. Seems crazy. There were a lot of people on uh, social media pointing out the fact that if that was a human in the United States, that would have cost them thousands of dollars to get that scan. Uh, yeah. I mean, we actually talk about the economics of healthcare and, and vet care in the interview, which is uh, it's interesting. And maybe we can talk about it afterwards as well. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I think you'll be proud of me, Dixon, because for this interview, I didn't come up with a witty intro or a clue. But I no, did come up with a spot the fake for you. Oh, good work. That'd be great. So th- this is all stuff that comes out in the interview, but let's uh-huh. see what your pretest knowledge is, like yeah, a good yeah. learning activity. So this is going to be one fake and two that are correct, unlike last right. time where you did the opposite accidentally. Uh, accidentally, on purpose, <laughs> randomly, who knows. All right, so here we go. These are from the chat. Two are true and one is fake. Mm-hmm. Okay. Statement one. The functional unit of the secondary pulmonary lobule is often the basis of much of our understanding of lung disease in HRCT. Mm. Is it true that dogs and cats do not actually have a secondary pulmonary lobule? Hmm. Statement two. Some dogs have curly tails. Yes. Is it true that their tails are due to the presence of multiple hemivertebrae? And statement three, a gasless abdomen on abdominal x-rays is abnormal in humans and a sign that the bowel is fluid-filled and aperistaltic. Is it true that cats always have a gasless abdomen and if you see any gas, then it is abnormal? Hmm. They all sound a little bit fake to me, Gaylord. (laughs) Um, That third one, I mean, you did emphasize the always. Mm, Maybe I'm just messing with you. Cats are strange. They must eat a little bit of gas. I know they eat fur and hair. Got fur balls. <laughs> but is there any gas in their bowel? Um, I'll leave that one for now. So the first statement, ugh, that's crazy. Functional unit of the lung, the secondary pulmonary lobule, that's what we use in humans all the time. Surely cats and dogs also have that. Surely it's fundamental to the lung of all mammals, right? Do you want to call Miranda and see if uh, yeah, call a friend? Yeah, a chest expert. <laughs> so that one seems... Strange, like would, why would it be a unique thing just to humans or just to apes? Doesn't seem right. Anyway, so statement two, some dogs have curly tails. That's true. They definitely have curly tails. <laughs> Is it true that their tails are curly due to the presence of multi-hemivertebra? 
I mean, it kind of makes sense. Hemivertebra would curl. It causes like a scoliosis. It would curl a tail. So I can see how that would make sense. But I could also see how you could make that up entirely. A little pigtail. Pig, do the pigs have hemivertebra? No, that probably doesn't have any bones in it. The pigtail. I don't know. Come on, Dixon. Well, I'm going to go with statement one. I think that cats and dogs would still have a secondary pulmonary lobule because otherwise that's just too complicated and the world needs to change. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, the answer comes in the interview. So you're just going to have to wait. Ah, man. So let's jump in. So Kathy graduated from the University of Sydney in 1992 and worked in mixed animal private practice, which I think means you see different kinds of animals rather than like different bits of animals all put together like Frankenstein. <laughs> like one of those books where you like turn the page yeah. and then you can create different types of mutant animals. <laughs> <laughs> she worked both in Australia and the United Kingdom, and then she returned to Australia and undertook an imaging residency at the University of Melbourne and spent some time in Ohio State University as well. And now she's working as a teleradiologist and uh, doing a PhD on the CT of the fetlock of thoroughbred horses. Do you know what a fetlock is, Dixon? Something to do with the foot of the horse. Mm, smart man. What's a furlong? A furlong, that's distance. <laughs> yeah. I uh, don't know. It's like the, the distance that a peasant can walk in a day or something. Fetlocks and furlongs. Let's try and find out the answer <laughs> while we listen in. And then we'll be back for another chat, yeah? And you're going to give me Absolutely. the answer to the yep. question. Hopefully I was right. Surely they've got a secondary pulmonary lobule. Well, hello, Kathy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Frank. How are you? I'm okay. And we were just uh, comparing notes on our pets before we started recording. And your poor dog is currently having an anesthetic and getting stitched up. Yes, yes, it would appear that she ran into a stick yesterday, so she's got quite a nasty wound on her sternum, so I've taken her to my kind GP friend for, uh, as my children will say, to a real vet. <laughs> yes, we get that a lot, real doctors as well. You weren't tempted, just, uh, you know, hold it down and do a little bit of DIY in the garage? Oh, with my husband, definitely. He might have suggested that, but no, this dog is quite precious. So before we even start, this reminds me of um, when I was a medical student or maybe an intern we had a labrador called rupert a very very kind fat stupid animal and uh he used to shake his ears and then he got a hematoma in his ear uh -huh. and mm -hmm. the whole ear swelled up and looked like a an eggplant <laughs> and i'm like oh i'm a surgical trainee i could fix this <laughs> so uh from work i guess this is now many years ago so they're unlikely to fire me for this, but I took home like a surgical vacuum drain, just a little, <laughs> little one and some local, a scalpel blade. And this poor dog with his trusting eyes watched me Aww. lance his ear and, and put in the drain. <laughs> and I tried to wrap his head up with gauze and of course it didn't work. And the ear swelled up straight away. And then the next day, as I was thinking, oh, I should probably take him to the vet and his ears back to the size of an eggplant. In the middle of the kitchen, he shook his head violently and where I had lanced the ear burst and he sprayed a cup full of old <laughs> clotted blood in an arc that went from the ground up the cupboards on the kitchen and onto the ceiling. Yeah. And, and then after that, it settled down and he ended up with uh, dystrophic calcification in his ear, the poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, for all your kids at home, don't don't do DIY on your own children or your pets. 
But anyway, sorry, I, I've already taken over. <laughs> Tell me, Kathy, how exactly does one become a vet radiologist? Well, you have to do your undergrad or postgrad vet. So Melbourne, Sydney and Murdoch, you do postgrad vet and um, Sid- and uh, Queensland, JCU, CSU and Adelaide, you do undergrad vet. And then typically work in private practice for a couple of years, maybe one or two, then maybe an internship and then a residency. And in Australia, you do your training through the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists, and it's a three-year residency. But most people don't sit after three years. It takes four or five to fully prepare for the exams. You can also sit in Europe and sit with the European College of Veterinary Diagnostic Imaging or with the American College of Veterinary Radiologists. And is there the same uh, distinction between technicians, radiographers and radiologists as there is in in human animals? I've been very lucky to work at the University of Melbourne with some outstanding medical imaging technologists and they really, really make a big difference to our job. Most vets in practice will take their own radiographs or perform their own ultrasounds or okay, some people have CT with the just by themselves and with a veterinary Mm -hmm. nurse to help rather than a technologist to help. But having a the input of a technologist really enhances the quality of the study. Oh, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine how you can do it all. You can't. I mean, I've narrowed my practice down to adult brains, not epilepsy, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and already there's too much. So on top of it, and also need to know how to actually scan it would be would be crazy. But that, I guess, is is one of the things that I find fascinating about veterinary science in general, but veterinary radiology. Studying one animal, humans, is is challenging enough and there's enough going on. How, how do you conceptualize studying for so many different species? Is it that you start with a base, like a, a ground state that applies to everyone and you learn exceptions? Or do you learn like each different animal? Or how does that work and how do you think of it in, internally? Basic anatomy training and physiology starts with the dog because... The, the ones that have been best studied and there's some wonderful textbooks, for example, Miller's Anatomy of the Dog. So we start with the dog and then build from there and then go into the species differences. And, mm-hmm. for example, one of the things is cats are not just small dogs and there's some key anatomical differences with cats. Anyone who has uh, owned a cat and a dog will know that they are from different planets. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. And I did get into trouble in one lecture once when I took a line from the feline medicine specialists and said cats are just aliens sent from another planet to confuse us and apparently that um, offended the cat people in the audience oh my god i had never thought of that i mean i know you have to be careful of what you say Mm. but i I didn't think that you could get in trouble now from indeed from various cat or animal subgroups (laughs) yes and so then the comparative anatomy is fascinating you know even the locomotion is different for example a horse stands on the distal phalanx of the third digit. And so there's a whole lot of different anatomical issues with respect to that. Now, is that is that the fetlock? Because I know you're doing a PhD in, in the fetlock of thoroughbred horses. Yes. So the fetlock is the metacarpo or metatarsophalangeal joint. If you look at a horse standing, that's what some people call the ankle. It looks kind of like an ankle. Oh, so quick question. Yeah. Horses have metacarpals? Yes. All animals do. But as in the front two legs have metacarpals and the back two legs have metatarsals? Yes, that's correct. Even though they're all legs? Yes, yes. Oh, see, it gets confusing already. That's uh... What is really fascinating 
is that in birds, it's like studying mammals. And so if we're talking about studying birds, then there's all the different species of birds, the different types of birds. And so you can't just say, I'm going to study a bird because then there's you know, chickens and parrots and all the different birds. And so the bird specialists mm. are really clever studying all the different birds, whereas most vets and imaging specialists who do mammals do dogs, cats or horses, for example. And there are a number of people who then do the unusual pets like um, rabbits and guinea pigs and things and some people do exotics but I think to your point about um, in your field you subspecialize we're heading down that path quite a lot because you just can't know everything about everything hmm. and I do remember one day working at the University of Melbourne I had a dog in CT a cat in ultrasound and a horse in x-ray and I was jumping between the three <laughs> and you know saying you know, I've got three different species and three different modalities you know it's so it's such a joy and such a challenge. Yeah, I can imagine. And is are most of these self-declared interests and competency mm. or are there licensing or oversight about what animals you can and can't? Yeah, so with respect to general practitioners, everybody graduates able to treat any animal, but then you would go down a path of special interest in terms of cats and dogs and horses, etc. Um, for imaging, we now in Australia, you can do your imaging specialty in small animals or you can do it in the general track, which is small animals and equine. What's the biggest small animal you can have? Dogs, cats, uh, class of small animals. And then we also lump into that what's called the unusual pets like rabbits and guinea pigs and then some turtles and reptiles and things like that. Right. Whereas pigs and sheep would all be large animals. That's correct. Yeah. For for zoo animals, that would be a, a very different mm. sort of subspecialty interest as well, because that would be very unusual. Yes. And- I have so much admiration for the zoo vets because they work across just about every type of animal you, animal you could possibly imagine. And so mm. I have done in the past quite a bit of work with Melbourne Zoo and you know, we might be doing an elephant, for example, and then the veterinarians might be going off to see a snake. They also have to deal with the insects and the birds and they are just the most amazing veterinarians because they work across just the widest range of animals. It's incredible. And those animals are very precious. Hmm. So there's the study of comparative anatomy and, and I kind of understand how it's complicated and there's an enormous scope, but it's still hmm. manageable as in you can take different animals and, and study them. How do you go about applying knowledge about pathology and treatment because surely you don't have randomized control studies for interstitial lung disease management in (laughs) guinea pigs you have to take a lot of human literature for less Mm. common cases and how translatable is that yes that's such a good question there are the studies in veterinary science that suffer from small numbers and often poor quality studies so we do look to the human literature a lot And one of the big problems is when we look into the human literature, taking findings from the human literature straight into the veterinary field without really considering the anatomy or physiology of this animal that we're looking at. And one of the big issues, for example, is taking the terminology that is used for HRCT in humans and applying it to dogs and cats. Mm Because dogs and cats don't have a secondary pulmonary lobule. So we can't use those terms related to the lobule when we're describing the changes seen on CT of the dog and cat lung. That must uh, drive you crazy. When, as a subspecialist, you read general reports, you sometimes come across uh, imprecise 
terminology mm-hmm. that is unintentional and you know understandable, but it's still kind of annoying. Do you do you get that as well for areas that you've got particular interest in? Oh, Frank, I have many goats. Um, <laughs> goats, I love goats. We'll talk about goats. <laughs> that sort of thing does lead down a path often of unintended consequences. So, for example, it's quite normal on the radiograph of a cat abdomen to see the string of pearls of the small intestines, particularly emergency clinicians who've been reading into the human literature uh, get all excited about that. But that's quite normal for the cat because they have really strong peristalsis. And so we have to be very careful taking readings from the human literature and applying that to our species. Uh, we just really need to consider the anatomy and physiology of the animals that we are looking at. So you, you mentioned pet goats. As you know, I have many goats myself. <laughs> but I have to ask, are there goat-specific diseases that particularly stand out? Oh, there are. So male goats, particularly neutered male goats, are very prone to urethral obstructions from urolithiasis. <laughs> and they have a sigmoid flexure of their urethra and at the end of it, a vermiform process. And so it's really quite designed quite well for obstruction with small stones <laughs> and so we see um, u- um urethral obstruction in goats not uncommonly are they particularly uh, like goats are they one of the annoying animals to deal with no they are so delightful like goats are just <laughs> gorgeous and if i had goat appropriate fencing i would have a goat but you need special fences for goats because they get out the most annoying animals to deal with, I must say, so I'm terribly sorry if I offend any Malamute owners out there, but the most annoying <laughs> animals are Malamutes. They look Why? like big, tough animals, yeah. but they are wimpy and oh, they're <laughs> very, on the whole, very challenging to deal with. But we're very lucky, Frank. Just personality-wise. Yeah. I remember when I was still occasionally seeing patients as an intern or something <laughs> that you'd have to go in and put a drip in. And, you know, the the muscly guys with tattoos, they would be the ones that would faint and complain. And instead, the, the little old lady, you, you, could, you could put the IV cannula in backwards, you know, blunt end first, and they'd be like, oh, yes, doctor, it's okay. <laughs> so I'm not surprised that the Malamute is, is a big wimp. Oh. Now, in terms of animal personalities, that must have a really big impact with how easy it is to perform examinations. Do you do everything under sedation? Um, so I'm a radiologist, so absolutely, just about everything's under sedation or anaesthesia. And uh, at the University of Melbourne, I worked with some super clever anaesthetists. I would just defer to them and they would take care of things beautifully. For example, to do a good quality x-ray or ultrasound examination, they really have to be sedated. Mm-hmm or anaesthetized. And a couple of things for that. One is that they understandably get very anxious lying on the x-ray table or an ultrasound. And if you want to stretch them out and get a good quality study, you really have to sedate them. Mm -hmm. And also, I really firmly believe as veterinarians, we need to be advocates for our patients. And so if they're stressed and anxious, then that's not good. And so if we sedate them, then they're just happy. They just lie nice and still. For example, um, when I do an abdominal ultrasound, I get the patient lying on the table beautifully with beautiful abdominal muscle relaxation, do the study, then they get up and they walk out. So it's absolutely brilliant. Um, With horses, you can do a number of studies with horses when they're not sedated, particularly with racing horses. You have to be very careful about how close they are to a race with respect to drug administration. Mm. But if you're doing um, a major study, like an extended ultrasound examination or a CT, for example, we have standing CT at the University of Melbourne, 
then they're heavily sedated. And obviously dogs and cats have to be anaesthetized or very heavily sedated for CT and MR. Yeah. The animals can't give you a good story. So presumably the requests that you get are even vaguer than the ones we get in humans. Is just sick dog a, a standard kind of request that you would have to deal with? Oh, Frank, we get everything from a brilliant history with a beautifully well-constructed clinical question and then we get nothing. Yeah. My colleague and I keep a running sheet of some of the questions that we get in teleradiology land and it, you know, things like comment on the x-rays. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a heap. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay, now there are some more things I want to talk about, but before then, I need to ask you a random question. Dixon insists that I do this. Okay, can you name a time that you laughed the hardest at work? Yes, and many years ago when I was working at the University of Melbourne and in the olden days, we used to have lead gowns that were actually mm. made of lead and so they were very heavy. So one of the students decided to see how many lead gowns he could put on all at once <laughs> and I think he got about eight gowns on and then they were so heavy that he lay down on the x-ray table and he was literally cast. He could not get up <laughs> because he was <laughs> under all these gowns. And of course, we were all mucking around. I'm supposed to be supervising these students. And just as this was all happening, the director of the hospital came through <laughs> with some dignitaries and he was showing them on a tour of the hospital. <laughs> and there's this student cast under all these gowns and the x-ray table. Just perfect timing. Absolutely perfect timing. Oh, perfect timing. Yeah. It took quite a bit to get the student out of all the gowns too. <laughs> Those old gowns were certainly very heavy. What's resourcing like from an equipment point of view? Presumably there's no, and this will depend on countries and states, et cetera, but presumably there's no state funding for veterinary. So it's all done through billing patients and their owners. Yes. And what impact does that have to resourcing and equipment? I think what a lot of people, particularly in Australia, don't understand is the vet is a small business. So a veterinarian owns a practice and is responsible for all of the equipment in that practice. So obviously the anaesthetic machine, x-ray machine, ultrasound, um, if they have a CT. Corporatization is coming in and changing that a little bit, but it's they're still small businesses and so mm. medical care is expensive and increasingly people want the care for their animals that they get for themselves and this costs money and in Australia because of Medicare people don't understand the costs associated with medical care in the United States and the UK it's slightly different but this means that veterinarians need to supply all this equipment and so for example in the big cities most veterinarians have a lot of equipment they're well resourced and for example if your practice doesn't have a CT mm -hmm. you could refer that patient to another practice nearby with a CT that's not the case in the country and it's certainly not the case in places like the Northern Territory and I recently or about a year ago went to the Northern Territory to do an ultrasound workshop and in Darwin there are no specialists and there's no CT and there's no MR and so these vets are doing everything they do with radiographs and ultrasound but I must say those veterinarians were so awesome and their clinical reasoning and problem solving was outstanding because mm. they actually had to think about their cases rather than just going, oh, let's do some more imaging. Well, that's definitely been the case. Even during my career, there's, it's a noticeable difference of how much the clinical problem solving task has been delegated to imaging. Mm. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's a, a good thing in that no matter how good a clinician you are, it's easier to diagnose appendicitis with a CT than it is by feeling and poking and taking a history. And it's good from a profession point of view because, you know, more and more work for us. And the fact that in human medicine in some countries, Australia's got a comparatively amazing health system where 
patients don't have to pay uh, out of pocket for much of their therapy if they're in the public system or zero if they're in the public system. The cost of doing that medicine is hidden from the population. There is this expectation. And so then you go to the vet and you have to pay $400 for an x-ray and you're outraged because you had four MRIs, a CT, a consultation, et cetera, all for free at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Yes. How does that translate into intervention? Because I mean, disposables are extremely expensive. Absolutely. Presumably not everything's available. You're not doing clot retrievals. No, we're not. And clotting is not a big issue in most species. The cats occasionally get clots that lodge at their distal aorta and block the blood supply to their hind limbs. But increasingly there is intervention and not that I do IR, but a number of my colleagues place stents for PDAs and Mm portosystemic shunts. Dogs get congenital portosystemic shunt. Hmm. So there's a lot of stent placement for that now rather than surgery. Hmm. Veterinary care is costly. And in my time as being a veterinarian, I've really seen a shift from, you know, when I graduated, owners were owners and pets were pets. Hmm. Whereas now owners are parents and their pets are fur babies. And so that really changes, A, the conversation with the client, but as a radiologist, I'm really lucky because I don't have to do that. It's one of the reasons I'm a radiologist, Frank. I'm I'm right there with you. (laughs) So it changes the conversation with the, I still call them owners rather than parents, but it also changes what they want or what they expect for Mm. their fur babies as opposed to their dogs and cats. Is is that the the new terminology, parents? Oh yes. Oh yes. There's no solution, and it's a difficult problem. But the distinction between what we can do and what we should do and what we can afford to do those are three very different situations. And yes, I mean in human medicine we don't do a good job of solving that because we distribute funds extremely inequitably through the world and even in our own societies Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. we spend uh, enormous amounts on elderly patients with near terminal conditions and few prospects of full recovery, while simultaneously there are communities that don't have fresh water and vaccinations, etc. But no hospital executive, no politician, no individual doctor has any incentive to really have that conversation. And I guess because the cost is displaced and hidden, it's an even easier thing to ignore in humans. In veterinary practice, it's, well, we can do this. And then it's up to whether you want to spend the money on your pet to do that. And I think that the question about spending the money is obviously there. But the other thing is, is this the right decision for this animal? Mm. And I firmly believe that as veterinarians, we need to be advocates for our patients. And often owners want to do a lot of intervention when it may not necessarily be in the best interest of that patient. And I think as veterinarians, we need to be very good counselling owners. And it is challenging. Our beloved dogs and cats live a very short life compared to us. And some difficult decisions have to be made, but we're very lucky that we are able to make those decisions with respect to um, offering euthanasia in our patients. But I'll just make the note, Frank, that um, the suicide rate in veterinarians is four times the general population. Oh, really? And it's a massive issue for our profession. I don't think I know of a single veterinarian who hasn't lost a colleague to suicide. Oh, my God. So a lot of the pressures with respect to finances and Mm. we really would like to do this for the patient or whatever, and the pressure the owners put on vets has a real impact on the veterinarian's mental health. Uh, That's a really interesting 
observation. I can see how that would play out. Vets learn a lot about medicine from human literature because of the funding that's there. Mm. But there are things that we should be learning from the other side. Mm. I remember my old Labrador, Rupert, lived to well into his late teens and he was okay. And then he developed a cough and we went to the vet and he had throat cancer. Mm -hmm. We took him home. He had some special extra meals. Then he went the next day and he was put down and it was peaceful and it was Mm. very civilized. And then you look at what would happen Mm -hmm. to an octogenarian person with throat cancer and you think yeah i'm i'm not sure which which is getting the better deal Mm -hmm. and i know that there's lots of countries that are working towards assisted suicide or euthanasia or whatever the, the term that's used is but it's still amazingly difficult to end your life with dignity and with pets we seem to do a better job Mm -hmm. in some ways we do and it's a great gift that we can give to our animals. Let's not say it's easy. And again, that's another mm. reason I'm a radiologist. I always say that I've got the perfect veterinary job because I don't have to speak with clients. I don't have to euthanize the patients, but I get to do yeah. all the fabulous problem solving and trying to help them in the best way. Yeah, I feel exactly the same thing. And it's, uh, you know, Andrew says that I say this a lot and, and it's true. I'm really pleased that there are people that have the capacity Mm. to deal with that. I mean, the fact that oncologists exist and palliative care physicians exist and vets exist, all of that, fantastic, but it's really not for me. Anyway, that's really morbid. So let's break this up with a second random question. (laughs) And uh, do you have a favourite imaging study? Oh, I absolutely love the abdominal radiographs of a vomiting one-year-old Labrador. (laughs) Why is that? (laughs) Because Labradors eat all sorts of cool things and they get stuck in their small intestine. And so whenever you've got a radiograph of a Labrador, a vomiting Labrador, oh, goody, what am I going to see here? And what are the best things you've found? Some of the most common are um, corn cobs. You know, corn cobs that, you know, like the old KFC corn cobs or corn cobs that are about half the length of a cob. Oh, yeah. Perfect size to be swallowed whole by a Labrador, Ah. but not the perfect size to get through the gastrointestinal tract. And so they make fabulous (laughs) opacities on the radiograph. They'd be probably quite hard to... It's a spot. They wouldn't be that dense, would they? That's why they're fun because you're like, oh, where is it? That's like body packing. Yeah. At my hospital, we have to do uh, some body packing x-rays for the airport nearby. Ah, And um, the variability in ingenuity and quality of the attempts (laughs) is is striking. I mean, some of them are just like you've swallowed 30 golf balls and it's ridiculously obvious. And other times you have three or four people all staring at this person's stool on CT even and trying to um and ah and as you know, are, are these stools too regular? Could they be real? Could they not be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And talking about golf balls, we did have a dog, at, I think it might have been a Malibu, that lived near a golf course and it was vomiting <laughs> radiographed. It had about eight golf balls in its stomach. <laughs> I completely buy that. Okay, before we go, I do have a few dog-related questions, though, because I have a dog, Eric, uh, the half a dog. It's a Monty Python reference because he's a Labradoodle and he's half the size of what he should be. Anyway, now, are there any particular things I need to be aware of in dogs that I'm unlikely to know about? Poodles are prone to mitral valve disease. Oh, I've got a little Jack Russell Poodle Cross, which is the coolest dog. It's only about three and a half kilos. Right. And so she is very much at risk of mitral valve disease. They get an endocardiosis. And huh. if you, if anyone out there has a Cavalier King Charles, those dogs are particularly prone to mitral valve disease. 
Should I be looking for its J-wave or whatever it's called in its jugular? <laughs> how, how do I spot mitral valve disease in my poodle? Uh, it, the first thing is they increase their respiratory rate. So if they're just lying down sleeping, they should be their respiratory rate should be about 32 breaths per minute. Another dog-related question. How do you number vertebrae in dogs once you get to the pelvis and tail? And are they called vertebrae when they're in the tail? You know how anatomists like to rename things. They used to be the mm-hmm. coccygeal vertebrae, but now they're the caudal oh. vertebrae. And dogs have between 5 and 25, depending oh, on the breed. Okay. But one of the things to be aware of is that dogs like pugs and those little dogs with the curly tail, the tails are curly because they have multiple hemivertebrae. <laughs> that is fine in a tail. Yep. But it's not fine when it's in your thoracic and lumbar vertebrae. And so a lot of these dogs have multiple vertebral anomalies that will lead to spinal cord impingement. And I think as humans, we've done some terrible things by selective breeding for some of these dogs that are super cute. Oh, I'm glad you said that, you know, because actually this is a pet. I'm going to offend lots of people here and I'm sorry, and I'm going to do it instead of you. (laughs) But when I go to the park, there's normal happy dogs Mm -hmm. and then there are mutant Mm -hmm. deformed dogs and people think that's okay because we've given them names of breeds but it's it's really not okay it's not okay there's a pug at the park who looks like a meatball his eyes are almost dislocated Mm -hmm. he's got a divergent squint Mm -hmm. he can't breathe properly he can't walk properly and everyone thinks he's adorable but if you had a human baby like that, it would be a tragedy. And instead, we we selectively inbreed them to create animals that can't do basic doggy things. And presumably, a lot of these have, like you talked about the spinal cord problem, but a lot of these breeds would have huge health issues oh, related to them that are just unnecessary. Enormous health issues. It's such a welfare issue. And I get very angry that as a profession, we haven't advocated for these animals better. And many of these animals should not be being bred because ethically wrong to breed an animal that you know will have congenital abnormalities. And some of these animals to survive need to have surgery on their nose because they have stenotic nares. They have what's called brachycephalic syndrome where, you know, when we breed for their squashed in face, which is a congenital anomaly, we don't then breed for a shorter soft palate. So they have a very long soft palate Mm. that then obstructs their airway. So they need to have that shortened and starts this cascade of surgeries that really are not necessary if we breed correctly. Do we have the same problems with mental health and behavioural issues in dogs due to breeding? Yes, and I I suspect a lot of these animals are actually lovely placid pets because they're not well. For example, with Cavalier King Charles, they get Chiari malformations and um, syringohydromyelia. They get hydrocephalus. So they're placid because they're obtunded. That's right, yep. And probably have got a whopping great headache. Oh, the poor things. So I think that we need to be better at advocating and helping breeders understand what they're actually doing so that we can stop breeding dogs with congenital abnormalities. Well, we also have to change society's view of what's cute and adorable. In the same way, you know, we, we look at practices like uh, foot binding mm. historically in, in human girls as being barbaric, and you wouldn't dream of doing that now, even if you thought that the way you would teeter across the room on tiny feet was cute, it's not something that you do. And and a dog that can't breathe or run or eat properly, uh, there's nothing cute about it. And the problem is our approach to that. That's right. All right. Last question. And this is because I know everyone wants to know, can dogs 
actually fracture their penis bone? And if so, do you X-ray it? Do you orif it? Do you splint it? What 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 happens? <laughs> they do break their Oz penis, and uh, dog attack is quite a common cause of that. So if they're in a dog fight, yes, and we do X-ray them. Usually they can heal on their own. Occasionally they can heal with a bit of a bend in them. But um, mm-hmm. talking about things like that, my children absolutely hate it when I talk about comparative veterinary anatomy of the reproductive tract at dinner time. Oh, yes. When we were students at the University of Sydney, one of the first lectures, they presented a paper to us, dog penis, the paradox of flexible rigidity. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I think one of the great perks of doing veterinary radiology would be comparative anatomy of the reproductive system of different animals. And I would have thought my children would love nothing better than to talk about animal penises at dinner time. In fact, we do when we don't know what we're talking about. But now tonight, that's what we're talking there about. You go, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Kathy. That's been fantastic. I could speak for hours and we'll have to maybe have you back on some subspecialty pet related <laughs> issues. Thank you very much, Frank, and thanks for the invitation. Our pleasure. Take care. Oh, well, I think I've found an alternative title for this episode, Gaylad. Dog's penis, the paradox of flexible rigidity. <laughs> the paradox of flexible rigidity could also be the title of your leaked sex take. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I have known a few gymnasts. Uh, um, <laughs> I actually Googled dog's penis whilst listening to that oh, interview, dear. Gaylad. I saw a few things that I can't unsee, mate. This is uh, this is dangerous. The internet, you, you have to resist <laughs> temptation. It's actually what I say to the boys. It's like in, in a very serious dad voice. It's, there will come a time, son, where you will want to Google things, strange, un- unhealthy things. Don't do it. You Don't can't unsee it. it. You can't get it out of your hippocampus, not until you're, you know, 80 and demented and probably... <laughs> The dog's penises will be what's left. (laughs) Yeah. Well, did you know, and you probably do because this is dinner table chat at the Gaylord House, Mm -hmm. um, that the penis bone of dogs, because of that, they can achieve penetration before the penis itself is actually erect. And in fact, the engorgement of the dog's penis is more about distending the base and locking the penis into the vagina. So it can't come out ah. rather than actually allowing the penetration itself. Which explains why you see dogs sort of linked together and unable to. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Locked. Crazy, crazy stuff. And we think human sexuality is weird. <laughs> <laughs> but they can break their penis bone. There you go. I didn't know. That's, yeah. that's another fact. That, but you didn't include that in your spot the fake. No, because I figured you'd be all over penis trivia. (laughs) Well, I am now. (laughs) All right. So the spot, the fake, you went for secondary pulmonary lobule. Yeah, no, I was wrong. I was wrong. I heard that. That was amazing though, to hear that. You would think something like as fundamental as the secondary pulmonary lobule would be maintained. I would have said the same thing. But it actually brings up an interesting uh, discussion generally about how much you can transfer knowledge from one domain to another mm-hmm. and in human practice it comes up a fair bit when you're talking about kids yeah, yeah. and one of the neurologists that i work with they're just small adults is, is fond of say? saying you know they're not small adults <laughs> and uh it's true the same histology in a child behaves very differently things look different normal is different mm. and 
that's where subspecialty knowledge and subspecialty training comes in. And I think you get into a lot of trouble as a non-radiologist guessing what things will look like, just as radiologists get into a lot of trouble treating their parents with antihypertensives. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, to think about the pediatric example in our area of neuroradiology, you look at a pediatric brain MRI, Mm. It's completely different and it varies depending on whether they're months old, year old, that kind yeah. of thing as well. So, Anything else you want to chat about from this episode, Dixon? Well, I actually have a couple of things. I'm going to start with the more serious ones okay. and then I'll lighten things up towards the <laughs> okay. end. Okay. All right. So I'll stop grinning. <laughs> so my almost 16-year-old golden retriever we had to put down mm. recently. And I think, as Kathy said, access to euthanasia for pets, it, I mean, it really is a gift. And while, you know, I was really sad when we had to put Pablo down, it just felt, it felt right. And she was really relaxed and comfortable. In fact, she seemed more relaxed to be in the vet on that day than she'd ever been in a vet before. Mm, Like she was always quite anxious when when we took her to the vet, but this time she was relaxed. She was She's unable to walk at this stage, but she was taking little treats that the, the vet was offering her. And it was really, really nice. A really, a really nice moment and a really nice way to, to end her life. Obviously, things are a lot more complicated in yes. humans, um, but I just do hope that one day we can get the right balance with yeah. access to voluntary assisted dying. When I was an intern, I did a, a rotation in palliative care, and it was probably the most rewarding experience of my intern year. Right. It was the actual job where I felt like I was making a real difference to yeah. the end of these patients' life, as opposed to being an intern in the emergency department, fluffing around, you know, probably making more mistakes mm. <laughs> than, than I care to admit. But it really felt like you were doing something important. And palliative care is amazing. And I just hope that, you know, one day we can get better access to the voluntary assisted dying as well as palliative care. I couldn't agree more. I, um, someone in my family recently was diagnosed with cancer mm. and they wanted to look into assisted dying. So I did some reading about what the Australian legislation is, which we we do have now uh, assisted dying. I'm not sure what the correct terminology is, but it's very, very narrow. You need mm-hmm. to be, you know, within a few months of dying from a terminal illness and uncontrolled pain, etc. Um, so we looked at Switzerland, which has a much uh, laxer, well, not laxer, laxer is a pejorative, more liberal approach. And there, basically, you don't even need, well, from the legislative point of view, you don't need to have a terminal disease. You just need to be sound of mind and go there. Uh, But in practice, the companies that offer it do require, and it's kind of interesting because there are a number of different organizations that offer uh, assisted dying, and each one of those is more conservative than the legislation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's doable. But it costs thirty, forty thousand dollars, and you have to travel overseas, and you have to do all of this thing. It feels again like that sort of complication during a time of your life when what you actually want to do is be with your family and organize yeah. things, etc. Yeah. is is unnecessary. One of the reasons why I potentially would want to access assisted dying in the future would be if I'm not sound of mind, if I'm actually yeah. demented. That, I think, causes a lot of the problems because I think a lot of people would say that one of the main reasons for wanting to end their life would be if they've lost the capacity to actually control what they're doing and thinking. 
my wife often says that to me. You know, if I'm ever if I'm ever demented, feel free <laughs> to have me put down. And it's like, oh, yeah. that's actually one of the reasons why you can't do it. How do you give consent for something when you've no longer got the ability to give consent? Well, and it's this weird situation then that if you really don't want to end up deeply demented in a nursing home, mm. you you have to go to Switzerland while you're not demented. Yeah. Instead mm. of uh, waiting for the appropriate time. It's a, I mean, it's uh, not trying to trivialize the complications, but I, I think generally we err on the side of picturing how things could go badly easily. Like you think of families that put pressure on their relatives or whatever, mm. and we ignore the thing that we're used to, which is yeah. horrible, prolonged, dehumanizing periods of debility. The thing with animals is that we're always making decisions for our animals throughout the whole of their lives and there's no financial consequences. It's not like the, the dog has an inheritance. Yes. So that that complication is just not there with animals, which yeah. means that you can you can do this. And as I said, it just feels like the right thing to do. The other thing and another serious thing I wanted to talk about was mental health in vets. I think Kathy mentioned the, the very high suicide rate. And I have a cousin-in-law who's a vet, and I don't think people appreciate how much financial stress there really is as as a vet running the business. That you know, it is a small business, and as an outsider, you know, you look at it, you think this person, you know, study really hard. They've got amazing expertise. They should be valued and they should be rewarded for that. But that's not what happens. Mm-hmm. Pet owners come in, you tell them how much it's going to cost, and they're shocked and they ask for it for free. So you're doing these stressful things. You're doing it for really low cost often and you're still having to pay all these overhead costs yeah. for this technology that people expect you're going to use it just it breaks my heart to see somebody in that kind of situation and especially compare that to us right you know we work in a hospital on humans we get paid really really well and none of our patients have to pay directly for the services we're providing so they all feel quite happy so there's very little stress from that perspective for us yeah i touched on that in the interview but i think I mean, we know we do a terrible job of allocating resources in health, definitely globally, but even just within the country and even within a hospital, we spend money in this really weird, distorted way. You might be willing to spend $50,000 coiling a large aneurysm in a 90-year-old who's had a high-grade subarachnoid, but meanwhile, you don't have access to funds for preventative medicine or community Mm. outreach programs. the cost of veterinary healthcare is so much lower than humans. It's just that the human yeah. one is it's completely hidden. hidden. I don't know what the solution there is other than for people to realize that medical care is expensive regardless of my species. Yeah. And people say medicine being a doctor, you know, it's a vocation. I think being a vet is more of a vocation than, yeah. than being a, a medical doctor. I really do. Like it's amazing what my cousin and and other vets that I know do. Um, now I'm going to lighten things up though, Jaylard. <laughs> yes, um, please. <laughs> so I, I appreciated your much improved effort at asking random questions ah, during you. this interview. Yeah, you did well. So and we got the the lead coat story with <laughs> yes. the director of the hospital walking in. That was nice, and we got the ingested foreign body anecdotes. Mm. So that's why we do these questions, mate. So yeah. you've got your bronze level random question award unlocked, Gaylord. Thank you. I'm thrilled. 
<laughs> I have to go for silver next time. Stitch it onto your shirt. Uh, with regards to recognising foreign bodies on X-ray Gaylard, when I was a, a younger radiologist and perhaps when I was an older one too, uh, I enjoyed describing things that you see in patients' pockets, like on trauma pelvic X-rays, because we're at a trauma hospital, and it's you know they always just X-ray them. They've still got their pants on or whatever. And I remember one case where this patient had quite a number of coins in their pockets. And I described each coin, so I, like I'd measured the diameter and came up with the total value of loose change in this person's pocket, and then I included that in the report. The 50-cent piece in Australia, really easy to recognise because it's kind of, I don't know, a dodecahedron or something, yeah. but it's actually quite difficult to distinguish between you know, $0.10, cent, $1, $2 coins in someone's pocket. The diameters are quite similar. You need to take into account magnification. So if you've got a 50-cent coin, then you can do a ratio. That's correct. The ratio is yep. probably better than absolute measurements, right? They're not all directly looking yeah. like circles, right? Some of them are on, on an angle, so you've got to take that into account. So it's quite difficult geometry and mathematics to work out the value. There's a paper in this, Dixon. I think I actually got it wrong. So I did this real detailed analysis, <laughs> put the total volume, you know, there's $2.70 worth of loose change in this patient's pocket. And then someone was like, well, I don't think you got this one quite right. I think that's probably a 10 cent piece. Oh, damn it. You're right. <laughs> Another one I remember, this this patient had, again, a pelvic trauma x-ray and they had this thing in their pocket and it looked really weird and people were like, I wonder what that is. And I'm like, I'm going to work this out, right? So I looked at it and it kind of looked like this electronic thing, but it wasn't a phone because we see those all the time. So yeah. I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, oh, I wonder if that is like a garage door remote. Ah. Right? It just looked like that. Yeah. And so I started Googling garage door remotes. And I found one remote that looked identical. Like you, the buttons were in exactly the same spot, exactly the, the one the model I thought. Number, you know? Exactly. I put the make <laughs> and model in the report. Uh, a yeah. bit of harmless fun. I don't think that that's very a, a unique hobby because I definitely enjoyed working out foreign bodies, you know, not just the ones in pockets, but the ones that are swallowed or yeah, yeah. inhaled. And also all the various things that people, you know, put into themselves. Yes. I mean, it's harder to get specific model numbers on some of those. <laughs> and you don't want to try it that at work. Best to search on your own phone for those ones <laughs> rather than on the internet at work. <laughs> Maybe there's a card game that we could create where you get shown x-rays of objects oh. and then uh, you have to work out what they are. Like Pictionary, but... Not a bad idea. Mm, Radiopedia like card game. Well, we are going to work on some kind of board game or card game. That's It's got to happen eventually. It's one idea. I'll add it to the list of ideas. Uh, we better wrap this episode up, Gaylord. How can people get in contact with us? Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylord and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and feedback. Let us know if there's a, a board game idea that you have for us to add to the list. Uh, if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. In doing so, you'll be helping us to give free conference access to people in 125 low- and middle-income countries and even veterinary radiologists come yeah, along and, to our conference, apparently. And be kind to your vets. That's important. Yeah, absolutely. Pay your bills. And what else can people do to help us out, Frank? Oh, you can also help us out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. That's it. We're done and we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. See you, Dixon. Bye-bye. 
No, you're supposed to oh. say. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, out of here. Bye. <laughs> Stay rad, everyone. Stay, Stay rad. rad.